0: We are continuing in our series, The Gospel Transformed Life, and our message this morning is entitled, Our Advocate. Now, this morning, I did get a little bit more sleep uh, last night, so, you know, if, if last week was a little bit weird, um, I don't know, maybe it's going to be weirder, or it'll be less weird, I'm not sure. Uh, but yes, I did get a little bit more sleep this week, and Lil little fern, or as we call her, fernie, is here, she's in the nursery, so if you want to go sneak a peek at some point, feel free. And, uh, yeah, we're starting to get into the swing of things at the Berg home. Big thank you to all of you who uh, fed us throughout the last couple of weeks. Uh, definitely appreciated that. Took a lot of the burden off of having to cook and, and do all that. So, much appreciated. All right, so as we dive into this passage, one of the things that we're going to see uh, really throughout this whole epistle that we're looking at, First John. Um, and especially in the passage today that we're looking at, are marks of a gospel-transformed life, hence the title. So John's writing style um, has him repeating kind of in a cyclical pattern. He kind of just circles around to the same thing kind of over and over, but he says things in slightly different ways. So the way that the Apostle Paul writes, and the majority of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, at least the epistles, um, he kind of gives gospel doctrine, And then gospel application, you know, so it's like boom, 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 boom. John writes a little bit different. He kind of cycles back to the same idea uh, and just kind of repeats it in different ways. Repetition is the best teacher, or so I've been told. And uh, John, in this way of writing, shows us these different marks uh, that really display what the life of a believer looks like. He's showing that the life of a person who has been born again will look different than someone who has not been born again. But unlike most preaching today, he is not collapsing the law into the gospel. What I mean by that is that there's a lot of teaching that takes the commands and imperatives of the word of God and, and condenses it as part of the gospel, as if to say, um, in order to receive the grace of God, you must do this, 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 and this. And so we, we see a command in Scripture And we're going to see a lot of this command, uh, love one another. And we say that in order to receive Christ, in order to receive the gospel, you must love. And that's collapsing the law into the gospel. So we need to be trained by grace to make clear distinctions between law and gospel. But we also must see these commands and instructions uh, for our walk, for our pattern of life, and, and see that obedience is a good thing. Obedience to God's word is a good thing. And so by making these clearer distinctions between law and gospel, we can actually begin to understand how the commands of Scripture work for the believer. These commands are not added to the gospel, but they're also not removed from gospel promises. Um, it's easy when we read through Paul's writings when, as I said, it's kind of boom, boom, boom. You see the gospel promises right at the beginning, and it leads you into how to live And so that's easy sometimes to understand that it's from the gospel that we can then walk and work. Uh, In John's writing, we kind of circle around uh, to those things. These imperatives, these commands that we see can only be accomplished as we rest in Christ. Not in order to find rest. So I've said it before, we work from a position of rest. We don't work towards rest. We work from rest and what Christ has done. And what John is proclaiming in our passage today uh, is that very thing, that as we rest in Christ and what Christ has done, we, we have something to walk in. We have some works to do, some obedience uh, to do, not in order to earn anything, but to display what God has done. And really, this, this, he, all these things that he's going to say, they're not to give us fear. They're not to give us uh, kind of a sense of obligation, but really they give us, in assurance as a believer. As we unpack this text, we're going to look at three things the promise, the diagnostic, and the commandment. So let's read first John two one through eleven. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would illuminate it to us, that you would open our eyes to see the truth that is there. Help us to grow in these things, Lord. Uh, Lord, as as we look at this, help us to see what Christ has done and to rejoice. Help us to... Uh, just trust in what he has done and rest in what he has done and live in the liberty that you've given to us to, to love and to walk in light. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The promise. We see in verse 1 that John begins this thought with the phrase, my little children. John will use this phrase seven times in this letter. And it is a term of endearment and fatherly care. John has a few reasons for writing this letter, but he cares deeply for the people that he is writing to. And that should stand out to us. He writes this letter um, not because he has harsh things to say, you know, do this or else. He deeply is invested in these people's lives and he cares about them and where they're going, the way that their life is. He cares about the ones who 've departed, as we mentioned in the last couple of weeks there 's a group of people that have departed this church, and he even cares for them. But he is writing this that they know truth that they they are able to live uh, in the grace of God, as we 've already stated um, he, he is writing to combat some early false teachings that caused serious division in the church. The people that I mentioned that had left the church were claiming that they had no sin. They were claiming to have light. They were claiming to be enlightened. And this teaching that they were spreading was the early stages of a teaching that would later become known as Gnosticism. And really what it centers around is this idea that you can be enlightened, have this special secret knowledge, um, you know, join the club, get a badge or something, and you get all this secret knowledge that nobody else has. You know, if it's secret knowledge, how did they find it? I don't know. But John writes in chapter 1 that he wrote these things so the reader's joy might be made complete. So that's one of his reasons for writing. Here in chapter 2, John says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So what are these things that he's writing? Well, last week, uh, we looked at 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And what he described as these things here is that God is light. And that believers have the light of life inside them, the source of life in them. And that those in darkness are lying and do not have the truth. John clearly isn't proclaiming some kind of sinless perfectionism. Because the very next thing that he says in our passage today is, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John isn't after perfection in this life. But because of the intimate fellowship we have with the Father and the Son as our source of light and life, because of the power of the grace that we have received, John does believe that we will sin less. But even more importantly, more important than the issue of how often or or how we sin is the question of what we do when we sin. In chapter 1, verse 9, he told us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here in chapter 2, he is telling us to flee to our Savior, who is our advocate with the Father. Through the advocacy of Christ, we can see that our sins are truly forgiven. So what is the idea behind advocate? The word advocate in the Greek means helper, or one who comes alongside. And most uses of this word refer to the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the only use uh, of it referring to Christ. Most other references, or all the other references, are referring to the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, as our advocate, our helper, helps us when we sin. In chapter 1, verse 7, he is the cleanser of sin. As I said in chapter 1, verse 9, he is the forgiver of sin. And here in chapter 2, verse 1, he is the helper when we do sin. And that's really good news. We're, we're not abandoned uh, in this life. We have an advocate when we do sin. We might better understand the idea of advocate this way. Uh, I looked up the Webster's definition of advocate. Uh, I've seen this idea used before, and actually, uh, maybe about six months ago, maybe less, we were at a group at uh, the Tightsworth home, and Ron and Julie were sharing about the idea of advocacy. And it's stuck with me, uh, but I wanted to share with you kind of the Webster's definition of what it is. It's one who defends or maintains a cause. It's one who supports or promotes the interests of a cause. One who pleads the cause of another, specifically uh, before a tribunal or a judge. So it's someone who helps somebody. It's someone who speaks for someone who may not be able to speak for themselves. Jesus, the righteous one, sits on the right-hand side of the Father, and he's constantly advocating for his children. He's interceding on our behalf. He is constantly defending and maintaining the cause of his children. Now, this is not because God the Father has somehow forgotten. God's not sitting in heaven constantly forgetting about your status. But this is part of the role that the Son has. It's kind of like, picture this, when you sin, the Son whispers in the Father's ear, That one's ours. I paid for his sins. My blood covers her sins. That sin was punished and forgiven already in my blood. And in doing this, Jesus is saving to the uttermost. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So at Calvary, all your sin... Was forgiven. The unrighteousness that we have, all of our uh, transgressions have been cleansed, past, present, and future. And as a believer, when you sin, Jesus advocates for you by testifying to the Father on your behalf that those sins are washed away. I would encourage you to read through the book of Hebrews. And, and to really see the high priestly role of Jesus as he presents his finished sacrifice before the Father. It's a very encouraging book, especially looking through chapters 8, 9, and 10. They'll encourage you to see that Christ's work is a finished work. So Jesus, our advocate, is able to do this priestly work because of what verse 2 says. Back to first John says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation isn't a common word in our vocabulary. We don't often walk around saying that word. Uh, It simply means satisfaction. Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, made propitiation for us and he satisfied God's holiness and took his righteous wrath on our behalf. Because it satisfied the Father, there is no wrath or punishment remaining for the Christian. The propitiation, this propitiation is what Christ in his advocacy is pointing to on your behalf. So propitiation is the satisfaction of God's just wrath. But it also includes the idea of reconciliation with the Father. Romans three twenty-one through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians five eighteen through 19 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in these two passages, both from the Apostle Paul, what we see is that in Christ, the believer is justified by grace through Christ's work as the propitiation for our sin. And God's justice is met. And he is able to then justify the one who has faith in Christ. And through this, the believer is reconciled, brought back into relationship with God through Christ. So what does John mean here then when he says the the whole world. There is a global component of this reconciliation. This text is not teaching universalism, that all people, regardless of repentance or not repenting, uh, that somehow all people will be saved, but that the gospel does have universal reach. All who hear and believe may come from all over the world. And we see in Revelation that it's, people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Political, national, and socioeconomic backgrounds, these divides that we have cannot stop the gospel light from breaking through. So believer, no matter your background or nationality or your status, you are his and he is yours. And he ever lives to make intercession on your behalf. He's advocating for you. And he's doing this on the basis of his saving work. And this is the gospel promise that John is making. That all these amazing things have happened for the believer. All of these amazing promises are true for the believer. So you can rest in this. And you can flee to the arms of the Father when you sin. Because you have been reconciled. And our instinct is to flee away. You know, sometimes when Olive um, either does something she knows she's not supposed to, or kind of ironically, even when she kind of hurts herself, her first instinct is to run away. And she she did this the other day. She actually tripped and, like, bumped her knee against the table. And her first instinct was to actually run away. You know, so then as the father, I kind of have to chase after her. And sometimes that's a little crazy if she keeps running. But... uh that might be what you see on an average Tuesday in the Berg home is me chasing after her. But as, as God's children, and as John wrote, little children, we can flee to the arms of our Father because of what Jesus has done. We don't have to flee the opposite direction. We don't have to flee away thinking that there's some sort of retribution waiting for us. He encourages you. He invites you in and says, flee to me. So that's the gospel promise. Now we're going to look at the diagnostic. Having seen these amazing gospel promises, we, we look at this diagnostic and I want to ask this question, but I don't really want anybody to raise their hands or, you know, verbally acknowledge. Just, it's kind of rhetorical, but you know, it's a good thing. How many of you currently have the check engine light on in your vehicle? (laughs) Don't go look in one of mine. You know, this check engine light is is there for a reason, right? It's to show you that something is wrong in your car. It's not just a pretty decoration. And it, it also doesn't help to, like, tape over it. <laughs> Found that to be the case. Uh, but if you if you bring your car into the mechanic, you know, they'll hook up a scanner tool uh, to your car, and, and they'll check out what diagnostic codes were signaled. And, you know, depending on what those codes are, they may do some more tests to identify and diagnose what's wrong with your vehicle. All this is good stuff. You, sh- you should do this when your car is uh, giving you this signal. It's a diagnostic. So, you know, the encouragement here is if that's happening, maybe go get that checked. But diagno- diagnostics identify what's going on. And that's what we're going to see here in the rest of this passage. And we'll look at verses 3 through 6 here. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So here's the diagnostic. How do we know that we know him? We keep his commands. Keep the commandments. Now, we need to be careful here. As I talked about at the beginning, we have a tendency to collapse the law into the gospel. So we see that this text says if we keep his commandments, and later on it says whoever keeps his word, we might come away with the understanding uh, that in order to receive God's love and in order to know him, I must do these things first as a condition. But that's not what the text is saying. To simply put it, the text is saying that the one who knows him will keep his commandments. In this manner, the diagnostic that John is giving us serves to reveal what is already in the heart of the believer or the heart of the unbeliever to show what's not there. Those who had left the church that John is writing to claimed the light but denied their sin. And they were not keeping his commands. Their life didn't show fruit in keeping with the confession of knowing God. Now, many of you know that I have uh, pretty bad asthma and that I'm also a type 2 diabetic. And I was diagnosed with asthma at a very young age. Probably, I think it's around 5 or 6 that I was diagnosed. Um, I don't remember exactly. Uh, But I know that around that age, I ended up in the emergency room quite a few times. Um, I was the... I was the one that caused my parents to have lots of medical bills. And uh, a a hospital stay in there as well. And uh, then around the age of 25, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And in both instances, when I was diagnosed, I was given prescriptions. Certain medications to take. Now, diagnosis and prescriptions are very different things. A diagnosis tells you what's wrong. A prescription is to either treat the symptoms or treat the the illness or or whatever. You don't receive a diagnosis for asthma with a prescription that says uh, go home and stop having asthma. (laughs) You know, if you work really hard at not having asthma, you can get rid of it. If you just try hard to not have it. We are not to take this diagnosis of whether I keep God's commandments as the prescription. It is an evidence or an indication of knowing God, not a condition of knowing God. If the diagnosis of a person's life reveals no obedience to God's commands, then the light of life is not in that person, and the prescription is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ. John 6, 28-29, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the disciples here ask Jesus, "What mo- what must we do? What are the works for us to do? What are the commands that we should be doing right now?" And the chief command, the chief word that Jesus shares with them is to believe on him, to believe in Christ. But I don't want you to walk away from here this morning thinking that obedience is a dirty word. It's not. We do need to understand how the gospel directs our obedience. First and foremost, uh, the chief command that I've said is to believe on Christ. And as we believe on Christ, as we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, obedience will be produced in us. New desires are being given to us as we've been given a new heart and we're in union with Christ. So these new things are going to be starting to show in our lives. We've been given this grace of God that enables us. And we can then obey from that place, knowing that our obedience didn't earn that relationship. And as well, Christ's perfect obedience has been given to you. And that's what the Father sees when he looks at you, is Christ's perfect obedience and his advocacy on your behalf. And this continued obedience will will develop in you. You're being transformed by the power of the gospel. And... This obedience is good, and it it will benefit you. But more than you, it's going to benefit your neighbor. It's going to benefit your brother and sister in Christ, the people that you're sitting around this morning, the people that you attend Grace Group with, the people that you are part of D Group with. Your obedience to the commands are going to benefit them. Our obedience flows from our relationship with Christ and not the other way around. In this way, it offers us assurance. If there is a desire to love my brothers or sisters in Christ, if there is a desire for the things of God in my heart, I know that that's not natural to me. I know that that comes from the Lord. And so this is fruit in my life of the relationship that I have with God. So when I see obedience in my life, uh, that really can give me uh, assurance. However imperfect my record is, because here's the thing, as John has already written, when you sin, you're not going to do this perfectly. But when you fail to keep his commandments perfectly, we know that we have an advocate. And we can cycle back to the top when, when John wrote, when I, if I sin, we can say when I sin, because we will. When I fail to obey, I have this advocate. Have you ever observed how children often imitate their parents? You'll see many similarities. Maybe uh, the way your child walks is much like the way you walk. Maybe the way they speak is much like the way you speak. Or, you know, not not me. Olive doesn't take after me like that at all. The, The words she says, they don't come from me. Why is that? Well, When you're in an intimate relationship, you begin to pick up on some of those mannerisms. You know, the way that Olive pronounces certain words are because Chanel and I pronounce words a certain way. You know, And I'm correct. And you know Chanel's just, she can't help it, she's Cajun. <laughs> but these things, they develop through relationship. The believer lives with Jesus. And therefore, the life of the believer, the walk of the believer, will be more and more like Christ as we are in relationship. And this is what the gospel of grace produces. Verses 5 and 6 reveal to us that as we know him, speaking of relationships, speaking of this intimate connection that we have to the Father, our love for him will grow and we will mature. And as we abide in Christ, we will walk like Christ. And so rest in him. Rest in this relationship that you have as you abide, as you rest in Christ. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, then you can walk in the works that he has prepared for you beforehand. So, the diagnostic is to reveal what is already there. It's not the prescription. The prescription is to rest in Christ, but it definitely shows us what's on the inside. The keeping of commandments doesn't earn, but it does display the grace of God at work. Obedience is the display of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and obedience looks like fruit itself. We see, first of all, that Jesus obeyed his father in John 8 through 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus obeyed out of love for his father. And it wasn't a chore. You know, we tend to think of obedience kind of like chores. You know, mom told me to make my bed, so I will begrudgingly go and make my bed. You know, mom told me to clean my room, so a week from Thursday I might pick up a couple things. You know, husbands... If your wife says, take out the trash, we kind of say, oh, give me, give me 20 minutes. And then two hours later, she's, you know, bagging up the trash and saying, uh, it's ready for you. This obedience that we see, this, the commandments that we see here for the believer are not a chore. In fact, for the believer, they come from a new grace-fueled desire. Our desires are being changed, and so when we obey, it's out of that. It's out of that new desire, this new love that we have for the Lord. Let's read verses 7 through 11 here. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Love one another. He calls this an old command, and then he calls it a new command. So, John, which is it? Is it old or new? Well, it's both. In verses 8, he says at the same time. So it's both old and new. It's as old as Moses, as we see in the law. Leviticus nineteen eighteen: You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But under the law, this was impossible to keep. We didn't have the ability to perfectly love our neighbors. And just having the right motive to love was not enough. The law required perfection. You can't just mean to love somebody and then not do it and say, God, I I meant to. God required perfect obedience, and we didn't have the ability to do that. Jesus, in the book of John, then gives this new commandment. John thirteen thirty four. a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. The good news for us is that though the law required perfection, Jesus fulfilled the law and he kept it perfectly. And so this command is new and truer in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, those who abide in him, it is new and true of us as well. This love is a perfect love, and it is true in us because, as John says, the darkness is already being pushed back. The light of Jesus has come. Daniel Aiken writes in his commentary, Perfect love, as revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has dealt a death blow to darkness. Darkness is on the run, and it cannot outrun the light. In fact, the darkness is already departing, and the true light already shines. The light of the world has come. The king of light and love is already reigning, and the fullness and consummation of that reign is just around the corner. How we love one another gives evidence of all of this. And he continues, this love is as old as the sun and new as the dawn. Now, I know when you hear that, you might say, well, you know, I was watching the news yesterday and it kind of seems like darkness is winning. But we have hope in the gospel. We have promises in the gospel that the darkness is already fleeing. It may appear that for a time darkness is winning and reigning, but we know how the story ends. We have this hope that the light will overcome the darkness. The darkness will not overcome the light. Jesus is the light and he is already shining. And so that should give you hope despite what you see. Jesus is victorious. And one day when he returns, there won't be a shred of darkness left. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is a key ingredient for unity in the faith. The foundation for this love is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this light that we're talking about. His grace enables us to love, and love is produced in us as a fruit of the Spirit. And so, love one another. Walk in that. Walk in that grace that he has given and love one another. So we see this imperative to love one another uh, given in multiple places in the New Testament. And I'm going to read a few of those for you. Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the need of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then dropping down to verse 15 and 16 here. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In all these commands, scripture does not tie our obedience or our love as the cause of our standing. It does not uh, show itself to be the the reason for our standing in Christ. These commands in Scripture are always preceded by gospel proclamation. And so context with Scripture is always important. It's easy to isolate certain things and say, see, in order for us to get to heaven, I must do this, 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 and this. But when you see that these, these commands that were given and the obedience that we should be walking in are directly related to what has already transpired as our faith is in Christ, you'll see that these commands are actually fruit. They're an outgrowth or a reflection of what Christ has done in us. And so this love shines in the darkness and is like the moon. It's reflecting the light of the sun. The believer's love is a reflection of the love of the Son of God. Like the warmth of the daytime sun, it will draw people into the warmth of the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will use this as he draws people to Christ. I had Fern sitting on the couch with me uh, a couple days ago, and there was that rare instance where the sun came out. And the window behind me, but as the sun kind of was shining in, she kind of like moved her face a little bit so that the, the warmth of it was hitting her cheeks. And I just thought that was so cute. As, as you know, I'm obviously totally like addicted to just staring at her. Um, you know, just pretty amazing stuff. Uh, but just watching her as she kind of just like moves her head around, just so the warmth of the sun just hits her. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of people as He draws them to the sun. We read a moment ago from John thirteen thirty four about Jesus' new commandment to love. The following verse says this, By this, this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. At Grace Life, our mission is to preach the gospel and make disciples. And we desire to carry out this mission through our values of gospel, community, mission, and family. And biblical mission looks like what is described in the passages that I just read. It's an overflow of our love for one another, our community together. So community is us. It's the the brothers and sisters in Christ fellowshipping together. And it looks like what we've described. Read Ephesians 4. Read Romans 12. This is what this should look like. It's an overflow of what's taking place because of the gospel. It's us living together in community, sinning, repenting, confessing, applying the gospel to each other. And then inviting the lost world in to see what Jesus has done. They will see the love that we have for one another and know that we are his. And honestly, this is the best way to evangelize our neighbors. As we proclaim Christ and what He's done to them, and they see the evidence of it in how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we're there for one another. If you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will not love the lost. What would you be calling them to anyway? Come to this church that I barely tolerate, the people that I'm with. Come to this church where I don't even like these people. Maybe worse, come and be a part of this group of people that I hate. John says here in verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What does it mean to hate your brother? one of the definitions of hatred is indifference. And really, indifference is the opposite of love. Often when you're asked, what's the, the opposite of love, you'll say hate. But really, indifference is the opposite of love. And basically it means you could care less what happens to a person. You regularly assume the worst about this person. You want to see them pay for their sin. You blame, minimize, and try to justify... Maybe maybe you try to justify your own sin while you're blaming them. You hold their sin over their heads while trying to escape yours. You're always working to protect your own reputation, but could care less about others and their reputation. And love for one another is the opposite of that. It seeks to build each other up. It's humble. It's patient and enduring. Enduring is a difficult word. Enduring with one another. It's got longevity. It honors, it rejoices, and it's constant. And it is this that stands out to a world in darkness as the light of life pushes that darkness back. It is this love that will cause us to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to a world that's bound in death and darkness. And so John is calling us To walk in light. Walk in the light of life that you've received. Walk in the grace of God that you've received. And then walk in love towards one another. And this is the greatest witness that you'll have. Flee from this attitude of indifference toward one another. Flee into the arms of your advocate, Jesus Christ. In conclusion, as we remain in Christ, we're being transformed by him to love one another. We will obey Christ's commands out of delight and not out of obligation. Not because it earns, but because we've already been reconciled to God and his love is in us, working through us. When we fail to obey, when we sin, and even at times when we fall short and loving and maybe we act more like we Hate our brothers and sisters, maybe we're indifferent. We do have an advocate in Christ Jesus, the righteous. He is our advocate. He's not our accuser. He's our advocate. The voice of the enemy, the voice of the accuser, is going to be saying those things about your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're the ones who that's, that voice is the one that's going to be saying those things about you. those ugly, sinful things. But the voice of Christ is the voice of our advocate. Listen to that voice. So there's just one application for this morning, and I think it's probably pretty obvious. Rest in Christ and walk in love. As you walk in love, advocate for your brothers and sisters, hoping the best in them, hoping all things for them, caring for them. And this morning, if you are walking in darkness, maybe you've heard this diagnostic and you said, I I don't think that's me. I don't think that I'm walking in light. I don't think I have the source of light in me. I just want to urge you to trust in Christ for your salvation, to turn to him, to trust in him as your only substitute. He took your sin. He took what you deserve, the wrath that God had for you. And he took it all on himself. He will take you from death to life, from darkness to light. He died and was raised again for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you for this good news that Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, that he loved perfectly, that he did everything that you commanded him to do. We thank you that he did die on our behalf and was raised again so that we might be forgiven, that he's conquered death, hell, and the grave. Father, I thank you that uh, we've been given a new heart and new desires, and this love that comes from you is at work inside of us. Lord, by your grace, help us to continue to walk therein. Help us to walk in the things that you have for us, that you've had for us before time even began. Father, help this love that we have for one another that you're growing be a light to those who don't know you yet. That it would draw them in just like the warmth of the sun. Lord, we thank you for all that Jesus has done and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.